very good health to you and welcome to episode 58 of Mosin at Large where due to popular request I'll be giving you my low carb testimonial complete with lots of other resources that you might tap into do's and don'ts of successfully going low carb and we'll hear from a couple of others who've adopted the same low carb lifestyle Mosin at Large Podcast You're very welcome to contribute to the podcast and there are two ways to do it you can drop me an email to Jonathan that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. You can write something in that email or you can attach an audio recording using anything that records and that you can attach to an email. You can also call the listener line. That number is in the United States. It's 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736 and record a message that could be included in the podcast. Concise contributions always help. We can't include everything because of the volume of contributions we receive. And please note that if we do use your content, we reserve the right to edit it for clarity and brevity. You can follow Mosin at Large, all one word, on Twitter to join the conversation with other listeners, to get sneak peeks about what's coming up on the podcast. And I regularly tweet links that I think will be of interest to Mosin at Large listeners. To keep up to date with Mosin at Large and radio-related activities I'm doing, you can subscribe to our media email list. It's announcements only, and the traffic is very light. To do that, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at mosin.org. The podcast version of this show contains extracts from the full version, which is heard live on Mushroom FM at mushroomfm.com and anywhere that you listen to radio stations at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on a Saturday afternoon. For the full Mosin at Large experience, I encourage you to be part of that community. And finally, before we get into the episode this week, a reminder that this podcast is long, and to help you navigate past the bits that you aren't interested in to the bits that you are, it's segmented by chapters. If you have a podcast app capable of supporting chapters, and many on iOS and Android do this, you can skip between segments of the show. Time to say hi to Michael Loff in Evansville, Indiana, somebody who has made a great contribution to our industry over the years, to our community. And in fact, uh, Michael, way back, I remember tuning into his show that was called Handy Talk, which was kind of a pan-disability talk show that does predate Blindline, actually. And I, I think it was on Real Audio, and it was quite the achievement to put it together. And uh, Michael was always into all sorts of cool gadgets and things he was checking out. I remember he was really into Webly. I think that was you, Mike. Anyway, he says, I am writing to ask a big favor of you. I hope that you might share some of your life experiences to help hundreds, if not thousands of blind persons to live a happier and healthy life. On August the 12th, my son's 32nd birthday, I was diagnosed with gout This is a painful affliction caused by uric acid crystals forming in elbow, knee and toe joints. I also weighed in at 245 pounds, giving me a BMI of 30 and medically defining me as obese. Fortunately, both weight gain and gout can be undone. I reluctantly accepted the use of a wheelchair, but did so with a commitment to myself to do anything within my power to ensure I would never have to do this again. You have talked for months about the physical and mental benefits of a low-carb lifestyle and ketogenics. The benefits are obvious through the mental clarity and energy in each of your podcasts. While any of us can Google for information, Debates can get just as heated as those about which is the best screen reader. 
I foolishly thought red meat only referred to beef and that I could consume all the bacon and sausage my heart desired, or at least until my heart decided it had enough and shut down for good. One would think the silent heart attack I had would have changed my evil ways. It did for a time, but how quickly we forget. If you could please share some of what has proven to be your best strategies, including best sources of protein and vegetables, food and drink we should most try to avoid, benefits of organic versus cheaper processed foods, exercise routines, vitamins and supplements, useful iOS apps and informative websites, audiobooks on related subjects and anything to improve sleep quality. A few minutes on this topic, if not an entire podcast, would be appreciated beyond words, not only by myself, but I am sure hundreds, if not thousands, who respect your opinions and selfless contributions to the blind community. Thank you for the open dialogue and communications you facilitate and all that you do. Well, first of all, thank you so much for your very generous comments, Mike. I appreciate that. And I'm so sorry to hear that you've had such a rough time health-wise. I've talked about the difference keto has made in my life several times on my shows over the years, but this is the most detailed account that I've ever given. It is going to take some time, and we'll also talk to a couple of others who've had good low-carb experiences. So settle back. You can call this my low-carb testimony. I'm not qualified to suggest to anyone else that they do what I have done. I'm simply telling you that this has worked for me. There is some evidence that suggests that different body types respond better to certain kinds of eating. In this really detailed section, I'm going to point you to a lot of resources that, if you're listening live, you might like to capture by writing them down or recording this section. I will list all the resources that I mention in the show notes of the Mosin at Large podcast. First, let me start by explaining why I got interested in this subject in the first place. I have a history of heart disease in my family. My dad had his first heart attack when he was just 42. Later, I experienced both parents having quintuple heart bypasses within a day of each other. One went to support the other in the ambulance, and they both ended up being admitted and operated on. It was extremely stressful to go through that as a family. It even made the newspaper, you know, husband and wife going in there and one with a heart attack and the other in sympathy. There is also type 2 diabetes in my family. Separate from all of that, a mentor of mine who was an exuberant, larger-than-life kind of character used to laugh dismissively at those who were on those trendy health kicks. There was something fundamentally unmanly about eating a salad. And his argument was that you never knew when your time was up anyway, so you may as well enjoy life while it lasted. The trouble is, he spent the last few years of his life bedridden, very sick, and in a lot of pain because of choices that he made regarding his diet and lifestyle. He did not enjoy his later years. I vowed that none of those things would happen to me. So while it's true that I have no idea if I'm going to be struck on the head by a wayward soup can tomorrow, I would like however long I have left on the planet, whether that be a day or 60 years, to be days of activity and well-being. I love to question things, especially orthodoxy that seems to lack 
logic. So even in my 20s, I started to wonder about something. If what was then the conventional medical advice about heart-healthy diets and diabetes prevention were correct, how come the numbers seemed to be increasing? Why did heart disease seem to be a much bigger problem than it used to be? Undoubtedly, some people just live in the moment and chug down that pizza and the burgers and the fries and the beer and they don't attempt a course correction. But what about those people who perhaps have been given a wake-up call by a heart attack or the onset of type 2 diabetes and they've made a genuine effort, a valiant effort, to change their lifestyle according to the conventional wisdom? For many, there were still health issues which leads to the use of a wide range of drugs, and that can cause side effects, and so the downward spiral goes on. Was there a better way? I read one of Robert Atkins' books when I was in my 20s, and I tried the Atkins diet for a while. So we're talking the 1990s, and if you can remember back that far, you will know how the Atkins diet was vilified by the medical establishment then. It worked wonders for me, but I freaked out. So many people warned me of the dangers of this low-carb lifestyle. Co-workers told me that I was being reckless with my own health, that my kidneys would suffer, that everyone knows you should keep fat as low as possible, or your arteries are going to clog up. And most resonating of all for me, that if I kept up this Atkins foolishness, I was a heart attack waiting to happen. Now, because of my family history, that really struck a chord with me. So I gave it up, despite the benefits that I was seeing. People kept telling me to try something sensible, like Weight Watchers, for example. So I got on that for a while. I went to Weight Watchers. For me, the contrast with Atkins was stark. I felt hungry a lot of the time on Weight Watchers, and that made me irritable. I was sceptical about the point system, which I was later to read about in great detail as I got to grips with the calorie fallacy. I think Weight Watchers has changed a bit over the years, but certainly in those days, in the 90s, you got a set number of points allocated to you every day, and you could eat what you wanted as long as you stayed within your points allocation. Technically, this meant that you could live on nothing but highly processed food and lack critical nutrients your body requires for optimal function as long as you didn't exceed that all-important points allocation. I'm not saying I didn't lose weight on Weight Watchers. I did. But I found myself unable to stick to Weight Watchers and I just gradually drifted away from the eating plan, feeling guilty about it that somehow I had failed. But I really was hungry all the time. But I now know I'm far from alone. A lot of people who attempt calorie-restricted diets end up putting the weight that they've lost on again within a couple of years, and they often gain more than they lost. After the failed Weight Watchers experiment, I had a big lifestyle change of a different kind, which was to make things worse, because one of the most difficult lifestyles for maintaining good health is when you travel a lot, as I was doing in the early part of the century. You're at an airport, so, you know, you just grab a quick burger before the next flight. There's lots of time to kill in the evening, so you get together with colleagues and you have a big meal and a few drinks, and before you know it, the weight has piled on. I got to a point 
where my body mass index was 38.4. Based on my family history, I knew exactly what was in store for me. Thanks to a colleague, I found out about a book called The China Study, the most comprehensive study of nutrition ever conducted and the startling implications for diet, weight loss and long-term health. The author is T. Colin Campbell. It advocates a diet with minimal or even no animal products. In other words, a vegan diet for most people. And it makes a compelling case. It is highly critical of low-carb diets. I believe it was in this book that I read the lie that Robert Atkins died of a heart attack. I want to tackle that lie head-on because it does keep coming up. It keeps being spread by those who want to discourage people from trying a low-carb lifestyle. So what really happened? First of all, some people even say Robert Atkins just collapsed and died of a heart attack. It's undisputed that Robert Atkins slipped on an icy sidewalk and he was hospitalized as the result of his fall. He had no history of heart disease relating to diet. I'm going to come back to that. When he entered the hospital, he weighed 195 pounds and he was not obese. He went into a coma because of that fall. And during the nine days that he was in the coma before he died, he gained 63 pounds and that was due to fluid retention. Robert Atkins did have cardiomyopathy. Now that is a virus, nothing to do with eating. It's a virus that attacks the heart muscles. Anyway, at about the same time that I read the China study in 2011, coincidentally, a documentary came out on CNN produced by Sanjay Gupta, and it was called The Last Heart Attack. I'm not sure if that's available anywhere. It may be on YouTube. It praised the China study, and it included contributions from high-profile people, including Bill Clinton, who was following a predominantly vegan diet, although with a little bit of fish. My colleague was also having fantastic results with it, so I gave it a shot. Morally, I have always been troubled by the idea of eating dead creatures, so I felt that I was doing something ethical as well as potentially healthy. I did lose some weight, but the benefits I got were overshadowed by how hungry I felt a lot of the time and how hard it was for me to stick to a vegan diet. I love a good salad, but I found it really hard to live on salad, fruit and nuts alone. So I'd eat things like vegan pizzas, sandwiches, nachos and curries, which I really enjoy actually, but some of them do have sauces that are quite sugary. And I really, really missed cheese of all things. I found myself getting sicker much more often and not able to focus as clearly as I used to. But I did lose some weight. After a few months of trying very hard to make it work, including celebrating US Thanksgiving that year with Julia with a horrible tofu turkey substitute thing, it felt so good to sit down for a roast lamb meal. I felt defeated, again, like something was wrong with me, that I was the failure. But I just felt so horrible eating that way. I kept coming back to what I perceived to be the logic of the low-carb hypothesis. There was a lot more good quality literature in the low-carb space by then. And I started to ask myself if I had been too quick to succumb to the peer pressure when I gave Atkins up. 
I felt good when I was doing it. But when so many people, including doctors, are telling you that you'd be on a dangerous, unsustainable fad diet, you really have to think carefully about whether you're making a literally fatal mistake that might shorten your life. It's a big decision. Looking at the latest literature as it was back then, I noted that the Atkins lifestyle had evolved quite a bit. In the early part of the century, Robert Atkins invented the concept of net carbs. The idea here is that some carbs, like fiber and sugar alcohols, take longer to be absorbed, to be metabolized. Fiber, in particular, is really important for your health, and newer versions of the Atkins diet promoted eating a lot more leafy vegetables than was once the case. Now, as you probably know, if you listen to this show, I'm the kind of person who has to understand how something works. I'm never going to be simply told that this is what you should do and do it because I say so. The book that started me really seriously to change my path was Why We Get Fat and What to Do About It. And that is by Gary Taubes, T-A-U-B-E-S. Gary is a science journalist who wrote a book called Good Calories, Bad Calories back in 2007. In that book, he meticulously debunks the myth that all calories are created equal, although it makes a lot of sense when you just think about it for a bit, and that it's possible to exercise away your poor nutritional choices. Good Calories, Bad Calories has a lot of good science in it, but it is a very heavy technical read. And I think really it's designed to talk to medical professionals about what he perceives to be the folly of demonizing fat. I feel sure that if I hadn't read Why We Get Fat and What to Do About It, which is a much more user-friendly read, I would be a heart patient by now. Gary Torbs has also written The Case Against Sugar. I believe that one day sugar will come with the same kind of health warning that cigarettes do now. One of the reasons why people find it so difficult to switch to a low-carb diet is that sugar is highly addictive, and it's there by stealth in a lot of things. It can be found in a lot more products than most people realize. It creates a dependency that's really hard to break, and it's dangerous for our health. So blaming people for their health choices and food choices is not helpful. It takes courage and commitment and a lot of effort to make a change. I started truly studying low-carb diets after reading the Gary Torbs book, and here's a pocket summary of the science behind it. To be sure that I'm giving you accurate information, I am quoting here from a page on the Mayo Clinic's website. Now, it's a testimony to how far we've come that there is even a page about low-carb eating on the Mayo Clinic's site. Here's what they say, and I'm quoting now. Your body uses carbohydrates as its main fuel source. Complex carbohydrates, or starches, are broken down into simple sugars during digestion. They are then absorbed into your bloodstream, where they are known as blood sugars, or glucose. In general, Natural complex carbohydrates are digested more slowly, and they have less effect on blood sugar. Natural complex carbohydrates provide bulk and serve other body functions beyond fuel. Rising levels of blood sugar trigger the body to release insulin. Insulin helps glucose enter your body's cells. 
Some glucose is used by your body for energy, fueling your body for activities, whether it's going for a jog or simply breathing. Extra glucose is stored in your liver, muscles and other cells for later use or is converted to fat. The idea behind the low-carb diet is that decreasing carbs lowers insulin levels, which causes the body to burn fat for energy and ultimately leads to weight loss. That's the end of the quote, and expanding on this in my own words, your body wants you to survive, but your body will take the easy way out when it can. If you're giving it an easily convertible source of energy, then clearly it's just going to use that. If you're not feeding it pure energy, your body has to keep going, so it dips into your fat reserves, and it cleverly becomes a little converter that converts fat into fuel. So you're burning fat and losing weight. When you get to that point, it's a process called ketosis. So what do you give up on a low-carb diet? Initially, it is very strict because it's important to get into ketosis and burn fat for fuel and get your body used to that way of operating. You can eat meats and fish, eggs and vegetables that grow above the ground, so no potatoes or carrots which are too starchy. No rice either. Full-fat dairy is okay, but you would be surprised how many people are lactose intolerant. I saw a stat the other day that estimated that 65% of us are lactose intolerant to some degree. I really love my cheese, I have to say, but now that I've lost so much weight and I'm kind of at the end of the journey nearly, I do find that cheese stalls my weight loss, so I'm not eating dairy at the moment. But the food I eat is amazing. I love my omelettes, curries chosen with care to make sure they're not doing horrible sugary sauces, fresh salads with a lot of olive oil, and sometimes without any meat, just to take a break. Delicious seafood, especially salmon, which I eat a lot of, full of omega-3, and that's good for you. Green smoothies are nice, and if I really must, I will have low-carb nutrition bars. As low-carb becomes more mainstream, there are a lot of manufactured products out there in the low-carb category now. You can eat hamburgers without the bun. Most burger joints will now wrap your burger in a lettuce leaf for you. They know about low-carb options. We have a burger place here called Burger Fuel. It does gourmet burgers. It's absolutely delicious. And they have the low-carb option right there on their menu. You can order online and they will deliver and they'll give you a low-carb version and it's just delicious. And I tend to wash it down with a bottle of kombucha, which is fermented tea. It's flavored. You can get different kinds of flavors. You have to be careful, though, because... Now that kombucha is also mainstream, and it wasn't when I was really getting into it and making it myself with Richard, you do see some on the shelves in the supermarkets that are quite high in carbs. So get familiar with the concept of net carbs and the range that you need to be in and make a decision about whether what you're going to drink or eat for that matter is going to get you out of ketosis. Depending on what you've been eating up until now, there may be quite a lot that you're going to have to avoid to give up. Looking at the list of what you should steer clear of on a low-carb diet, I'm amazed that I miss very little of it. The avoid list includes grains, legumes, bread, pasta, starchy vegetables like potatoes and carrots, as I've said, and fruit. I love my jagged potatoes, mm -mm. <laughs> smothered in butter, so I do miss those. 
When I mention the fruit, people are shocked. They say, are you really serious? Fruit's so good for you. It's healthy. But it is high in natural sugar, and it will take you out of ketosis. When you've become keto-adapted, you can add some of these things back in small quantities. For example, I really enjoy berries as part of a low-carb dessert. This is where the Atkins plan is still quite good because they have various phases of eating and that will help you to bring foods back into your diet as you become keto-adapted. If you need more information about what I believe is the flawed science that has made so many of us feel bloated and sluggish and sick and generally suboptimal, I would recommend a surprisingly gripping read. It's called The Big Fat Surprise, Why Butter, Meat and Cheese Belong in a Healthy Diet, and it is by Nina Teicholz, and that is spelt T-E-I-C-H-O-L-Z. Nina is an investigative journalist who works for the New York Times, and in this book, she tells of how nutrition science got hijacked by one or two rogue scientists, and she lays it out rather like a detective novel with heroes and villains. It could have been a really dry read, but it's actually kind of a page-turner. Because of the research that she did, she has become a low-carb convert and advocate. Dr. Mark Hyman, his last name is spelled H-Y-M-A-N, he's a cardiologist who used to warn his patients off low-carb and adhere strictly to the low-fat hypothesis. The trouble was he started to get the guilt because he noticed that he wasn't helping his patients. They kept getting sicker and he wanted to do something about it. So he started doing his own research. Since then, he has made some excellent contributions to the low-carb literature, including Eat Fat, Get Thin, which is an excellent book. It also has an accompanying cookbook full of rather delicious recipes. There's another called Food, What the Heck Should I Eat? And he's written many other titles. Now, Mark Hyman also produces a very interesting podcast, and it's called The Doctor's Pharmacy. Be mindful, pharmacy in this case is spelt with an F. So if you check in your podcast client for The Doctor's Pharmacy, spelt F-A-R-M-A-C-Y, you will find it there. One thing Mark Hyman said in one of his books that resonated with me was that when you decide what you're going to eat, you should always ask yourself a simple question. Is this thing that I'm about to put in my mouth medicine or is it poison? It's one or the other. So the question's simple, it's binary, but it's surprisingly effective. Good quality whole foods will fuel your body for optimal performance. So that's medicine. On the other hand, sugary carby foods that spike your insulin levels may give you a bit of a lift and energy boost temporarily, but the crash will come and your body will simply crave more of it. And of course, you're not supplying the nutrients that your body needs to function well, so it's poison. Asking the food or poison question whenever I'm in a restaurant or I have the Uber Eats app open is a useful tool. If you used to listen to The Blind Side, you may remember that I interviewed low-carb blogger, podcaster, and author Jimmy Moore. 
He has several podcasts. Probably the most popular in this space is called Livin' La Vida Low Carb. I won't even try to spell that, but if you search for Jimmy Moore on your podcast app, it should come up. He has written and co-authored several books as well, including Keto Clarity, which also comes with a cookbook, the Keto Clarity Cookbook. There is a new book, not long out, which is worthy of reading as well, called Always Hungry, and that is by David Ludwig, L-U-D-W-I-G. So there's Always Hungry. And boy, could I relate to that before I went low carb. There's a vast amount of compelling literature out there now, and there are also some excellent websites and YouTube channels. One I really recommend is called dietdoctor.com, and dietdoctor is all one word, and the doctor is fully spelt out, D-O-C-T-O-R, so dietdoctor.com. It's a well-resourced, well-researched, professional site operated by doctors, dietitians, and other professionals, and it offers plenty of free material, but you can also subscribe to their Plus version, and they have a lot of recipes on there, whether you go for free or Plus. It's a good resource to get started with. If you're interested in investigating this whole low-carb thing, there are so many good articles, well-researched pieces on dietdoctor.com. For iOS users, I don't know about Android, but for iOS users, I have to say, unfortunately, the app isn't terribly accessible at the moment in terms of the sign-up process, the intro screen. In fact, I've never seen anything quite like it. You open this app, and it's almost as if there's nothing in the app at all, like it's empty. You just flick, and voiceover makes its bonk sound like it can't see a thing. If you happen to be beta testing iOS 14, There is this fantastic new feature in there where they perform OCR on inaccessible apps, and I was able to sign up that way. But the dietdoctor.com website is in good shape, and the founder of Diet Doctor, the CEO there who I've been talking to, says that they are working on the accessibility issues and that they are rewriting the app. The explanations at dietdoctor.com are clear, simple to follow. Highly recommend it. Bonnie gets some really yummy recipes, thank you Bonnie, from ditchthecarbs.com, and that is all one word. Now while paleo eating doesn't necessarily equate to low carb all the time, there are some very good low carb recipes available on paleoleap.com, that's paleoleap.com. You may also want to get one of those apps like MyFitnessPal or some sort of nutritional app that tells you the carb count of things, although I have been quite impressed by how often voice assistants will tell you the answers to those questions. So logging my macros is not something that I've got into too much, mainly because I haven't really found a low-carb friendly thing that does it well, that has a low-carb emphasis Now I want to talk about the journey of actually going low carb. So we've really talked about equipping yourself with the knowledge about whether this is the right thing to do in your opinion or not. And if you've decided based on a reading of the literature or what you've heard from others that it's worth a shot, then now we go on the journey. The first thing I would emphasize yet again is that all I am qualified to talk about is how well it has worked for me. If you have significant health issues, particularly diabetes or high blood pressure, or you happen to be breastfeeding, or you're on medication where a change of diet 
could affect the interaction with that medication. I cannot stress enough, do not do this without working with a medical professional who believes in and understands and is well-read in the low-carb lifestyle. They are much easier to find than ever now. The whole point of this is to get healthier. Don't put your health at further risk by going this alone if there might be medical complications and dangers for you. Next, if you live with someone, it's definitely easier if you can agree to try and work on this together. You will go through a period where you feel like you're sacrificing an awful lot of things that you enjoy until your taste buds and the rest of your body adapt. And then you'll think, man, I can't believe that I ever used to eat this stuff. And you'll try something and you'll think, oh, gosh, that's so sickly sweet. If someone else is chowing down on all those things that you miss when you start this, it makes it so much more difficult. Plus, it's in the house, so it's easy for you to get to. If everyone in your house agrees to at least try this, get all the forbidden foods out of the house dump them or or donate them or something. Get rid of all the non-diet sodas, which are pure poison. I would personally even ditch the diet sodas, but that would be quite hard for some people. I accept that. Clear the house of bread and pasta and fruit juice, which is full of natural sugar, but it's sugar nonetheless, carby processed foods, you know, cakes, snack bars, all that stuff. Just get them away from your house Replace them all instead with low-carb alternatives. That way, if you eventually decide that low-carb eating isn't for you, you'd at least have a need to consciously get high-carb foods back in your house rather than just, you know, wandering off to the fridge in a temporary moment of weakness for a quick Snickers bar. Sometimes it can be hard for blind people to read nutritional labels which is an important thing to do if you can, because you'll be surprised by just how much sugar is hidden in things you wouldn't expect. You can, of course, use services like Ira and Be My Eyes if you need to. Pick a start date and try really hard not to binge out on a high-carb last supper before that start date. It's only going to make things worse for you, and I'll talk about that in just a minute. If you really want to see if it works for the first two weeks to a month at least, you simply cannot stop doing it very strictly, not even for a moment. The whole point of this is to keep you in ketosis and let your body adapt. One little cheat meal will break it for you and you won't be in ketosis and that means that you won't be able to judge its effectiveness. If you've been eating a lot of sugary processed foods, going low carb may be horrible to begin with. As your body switches, literally from living off the energy you've been handing it on a plate, to burning fat for fuel, you may get what's known as the keto flu. You can get headaches, a sore throat, chills, digestive problems, and brain fog. Yep, it's horrible. Many people understandably get really despondent at this point. They're missing a lot of foods that are hard to let go of, because they're sugary and therefore highly addictive, they were told that they'd feel all this clarity and energy, and then they end up feeling like death warmed up instead. Not everybody gets this, but if you do, I promise you it does pass. Sometimes in a day or two, sometimes it can take quite a bit longer, depending on the state of your health. The only thing I can say about this part of the process 
is that the journey is totally worth the destination. Lots of people will tell you this, so you should trust them and give it time. You may even like to join some sort of low-carb support group on Facebook or an email list or something like that if you feel that support groups would be helpful for you. As you take time to learn about what foods are okay and which are not, you may find it easier to work from one of the many low-carb books out there that have quite detailed meal plans with several options for each meal. Most run for at least 14 days. Look for the options, choose what appeals to you, buy the ingredients from the supermarket and stick to it. If you've been eating a lot of sweet foods before you took this journey, you may be able to ease the transition a bit by having a few low-carb snacks like Atkins bars and Quest Nutrition bars. I would try to avoid those if possible. Your body is enriched and nourished by whole foods. The closer to the original source of the food you can stay, the better. Also, you've got to try and see if you can adapt your taste buds to not craving sweet. So when you have a diet soda or a snack bar, it tastes sweet. It tastes like things used to, and you're not really adapting your taste buds for some sort of long-term future. One myth about low-carb eating is that you can eat as much as you want. You absolutely can't. There is no need ever to feel hungry on a low-carb diet, but just eat until you're full and you'll feel fuller for longer. I think one of the problems that some people face, and I've talked to people about this when I've discussed low-carb eating, is that parents, some parents anyway, used to tell kids, and probably still do, they're starving back in, insert country here, so finish everything that's on your plate. And I'm not sure how finishing everything that's on your plate ever helped those people who were starving, but it does mean that some people find it really hard to not clean the plate. So if that's you, be mindful of portion sizes. If you really do feel hungry at the end of it, you can always go back for seconds. Drink plenty of water. Herbal teas are also good. There are some quite yummy ones out there, actually. Staying hydrated is very important at the best of times, but particularly at this stage. It can help you flush your system as you adapt to eating low carb. Over time, it can be a bit less strict as you become keto adapted and all the literature will help you through that. So why? What's the point of all this? What's it like eating low carb in terms of the effects? I have to say, when I went low carb, and stuck to it, the weight started falling off me. It was such a boost to have people saying, man, you are looking good these days. What did you do? How did you do that? I'd like to know. And when I tell people that it was low carb, some people still say it's dangerous, but fewer and fewer do. I've been through several rounds of having to buy new wardrobes now. It's a nice problem to have. And buying a pair of skinny jeans at my kids' urging was pretty awesome. I typically didn't wear clothes like that before. I almost lost my wedding ring because it was so large on my finger, so I ended up having to have my wedding ring resized as well. And that BMI I mentioned that was at 38, it is now at 24.5, which is in the acceptable range. It's not just about the weight, though. In 2016, after being low-carb for a bit, I had a routine medical exam. 
The results were so stunning that they actually gave me a call. And when you get a call from the medical center after you've done all that, you instantly think the worst. But the doctor was just surprised by the change in me. She was so surprised that she wanted to know what I was doing. All my indicators were in really good shape. And even a decade ago, despite those numbers, had I told her that I had gone low carb, I would probably have been given a very stern medical lecture. But times have changed. And she just commented that it was obviously working really well for me. It was working wonders and to keep doing what I was doing. In terms of other benefits, I have a congenital condition which causes my blindness and it also causes progressive hearing loss. It's called Norrie's disease. Before going low carb, I would have very regular bouts of sudden profound hearing loss and those bouts tended to get more severe and more regular as I was getting older. And some people who have Norrie's end up with cochlear implants my hearing would return very gradually when I would have these bouts. While extreme stress can still bring it on, and I am in quite a stressful job, I could count on the fingers of one hand with fingers to spare how many times that it has happened to me since going low carb. There has been a profound reduction, and I can't prove cause and effect. It could also be because I'm meditating, and I'll talk about that in a little bit, and meditation has a good effect on stress levels. It could be that, but I suspect the low carb does have something to do with it. Some people have even had their type 2 diabetes completely reversed by low carb eating. And I have not experienced that because I never got to the point where I acquired type 2 diabetes. In New Zealand, a strict medically supervised keto diet is even being given to people prone to regular epileptic seizures, and it seems to have a dramatic positive effect. Then, of course, there is the energy. I don't have those middle-of-the-day crashes, unless, of course, I'm dealing with non-24, which is a completely different topic. But people know this in the workplace. You know, you get to two or three, you have to have some sort of coffee or snack bar or something to keep you going. I feel fuller for longer because of the high-fat, high-protein things that I'm consuming. So I naturally eat less. I now maintain an intermittent fasting regime. And this is another thing that people go, you've got to eat. You know, breakfast is the most important meal of the day and all that kind of stuff. Intermittent fasting, there's a lot of literature increasingly on this as well. And that has improved my health further. So at the moment... I only eat within a six-hour window between 12 p.m. and about 6 p.m. usually, sometimes a bit later, and I don't feel hungry. Two days a week, I don't eat until dinner time. If you're interested in this subject, then Jimmy Moore has written a complete guide to fasting, and there's also a book by some New Zealand authors called What the Fast, <laughs> and they've also written a similar book called What the Fat. Fasting has many benefits, and three or four times a year, I'll fast for about 72 hours at a minimum, being careful, of course, to stay hydrated and to take electrolytes. There is an app called Zero in the App Store, Zero spelt out, which can help you with intermittent fasting and give you tips and help you log, and that Zero app is fully accessible. 
In his question, Michael asked about organics. We do shop at the organic store, not all the time, but some of the time, because we find the vegetables and berries and even the meat more flavorful. New Zealand's farming industry is a little bit different from farming industries in some other countries. Most of our beef is grass-fed, and there is all sorts of evidence that says that grass-fed beef is a lot better for you than grain-fed beef. We also tend to use fewer antibiotics and things of that nature in New Zealand in the agriculture industry generally, but still, organics do taste better to me in certain circumstances, and I think in the US, for a variety of reasons, you may well want to consider it. There are all sorts of books on this and debates on the web about the degree to which organics are important. The one thing I would say, though, of course, is it is environmentally friendly and probably at these difficult times, good business to buy local. Although I feel some obligation to say, of course, that New Zealand meat is fantastic and very good quality. It is important to ensure that you're getting enough fiber. I often take a supplement for this. I also take probiotics. I get a lot of them through my kombucha, which I really like. And I take a daily dose of magnesium as well as fish oil on the days that I don't have a fatty fish like salmon, which I really do enjoy. My good health has led me to other healthy behaviors like meditation, which has radically changed my life and my interaction with others. Meditation prompted me to give up alcohol, actually, entirely, because the feeling that I got from meditation was better than any alcohol-induced euphoria with no side effects in the morning. So what to do with all this energy, man? Well, that encouraged me to get serious about exercise. We now have a rowing machine, a treadmill, and a weight machine where we you know, lift weights of all kinds with your arms and your legs and that kind of stuff. And that has helped with my metabolism as well. Now, I am not perfect at this. Who is? Sometimes in a deliberate, calculated way, I will decide that I'm just going to enjoy a regular pizza. On very rare occasions, usually when it's been a stressful time, I have to say, which is something I have to work on, I will get something from the bakery or even donuts. That said, there are some pizza places that are doing some really delicious low-carb crusts now. I usually have salads from places like Subway and Peter Pit and local salad places, but very rarely I'll decide to have a sub instead. The important thing is that if you decide to do that, it can't be a spiral. You can't then say, oh, I've done it for one day, so one more day won't hurt, because that one day then becomes one more day and all your hard work gets undone. So what I want to stress here is that low-carb eating is a permanent change. If you go off it, then you will put the weight back on without question. It's not really that difficult because once you get used to your body running on all cylinders and then you eat something really unhealthy like donuts or a sugary dessert, you feel absolutely hideous and you're reminded of what you used to feel like. For me, that's enough to remind me why I started this journey in the first place. So that is my personal low-carb testimony. It's been something I've been meaning to do for a long time, so there you have it. If you choose to give low-carb eating a go, I wish you the best of luck. If it has the profound impact on you that it has had on me, 
then this show may be the most priceless gift that I could ever give another human being. Joining me for another low-carb perspective in the United States is Dan Fry. Hi, Dan. Hi, Jonathan. How are you? Super well for a blind guy, actually. (laughs) Tell me about your low-carb story and, first of all, what made you decide that it was worth giving this a shot? Throughout the course of my life, I have struggled with um, obesity and I have undertaken any number of alternative approaches to try and lose weight and to do it primarily for my health and and secondarily for any aesthetic advantage that is there to be had. And so I learned of this approach um, largely through you. And after trying weight loss surgery, after trying Weight Watchers, after trying a number of other uh, types, after undertaking a regimen of exercise and the like, we decided last uh, January of 2019 to um, undertake the um, the low-carb ketogenic diet after reading uh, several books that you recommended so that we really had a sense of the science behind this approach. You were full of questions. I recall that and lots of things about what what do you eat and does it really work and is it safe and things like that. And I also remember that when you started it, initially you were quite disheartened by the results. Yeah, it's true. I, um, I had a lot of questions and I wasn't sure that I was going to succeed. I wasn't sure I was losing weight rapidly enough. And you also, although there there are a lot of wonderful things that you can eat, I mean, carbs are uh, an appealing thing for those of us that have enjoyed them. And it was it was tough to make your way through the holiday and not have potatoes or dressing or pie and the like. Uh, But I started seeing quantifiable results and and decided I I could really see the advantage of this. Did you get the keto flu when you first started where everything just you you felt horrible and brain fog and generally just it feels really unpleasant? I did. Um, Mine lasted for maybe three or four days and then I emerged the other side feeling energetic and better for everything. Does that help then? I mean, you talked about those challenges of the holiday season, but I imagine as long as you're seeing the results, that's the motivator to stay on track. Seeing the results really is uh, a motivator to stay on track. And, and my wife, in, in, in her uh, counsel and support of my effort, um, also you know, s- suggested that for every increment that we agree upon that is uh, worthy, um, that we do something special, like get a, a different shirt or a, a buy a piece of clothing that is smaller, um, or, or buy yourself some music in the event that you don't want to buy clothing if you have too much more to go. Get yourself a CD. So we did that, but we'd weigh in every week, and that was certainly the motivator. And I'm I hope it's not immodest to say I'm pleased to to report that 
When I started in January of 2019, I was at 378.4 pounds. Um, I'm sorry, Jonathan, I can't translate that quickly enough right. the kilogram. <laughs> um, and as of last Sunday, since I weigh every Sunday, I had, so from 378.4, I'm down to 218.6. That is for a phenomenal, loss. isn't it? Oh, that's a lot of weight. It's a lot of weight. I, I've lost 159.8 pounds. More than what some people actually weigh. I I joke. Um, my wife is my wife and I have always been opposites, and I um I've always been big. She's always been very tiny, and um, I, I've said to someone, and this is when I'd lost maybe 110 pounds. And my wife's about a hundred of them. I said I lost my wife and ten pounds more. <laughs> and they said, "Why did you do that?" And so, yeah, that's great. What are the practical implications of this for you? I mean, obviously, it's not healthy to carry excess weight around. But do you feel better in yourself? You feel different, and all those things. I do. Um, I think I probably feel healthier, although I have some secondary conditions uh, with chronic pain that are not weight-related that make that hard to tell sometimes. But I think I do feel better. I certainly know that I have more stamina in terms of walking and um, climbing stairs and the like, and I have made that a part of my practice, although... It, it's not necessarily required in the ketogenic diet. So I, I can climb many, many flights of stairs without stopping and walk multiple miles without stopping. Um, and those were things that I absolutely could not and had no interest in doing when I first started. Practically, uh, sounds sort of silly, but when we could fly, sitting in a plane uh, in seats that are fundamentally too small for everybody was something that I could enjoy. I could pull the table down in front of me and not have to simply say to the flight attendant, oh, no, I don't really want the table down. I'll just hold my drink in my hand and sort of cope with the fact that I was hiding the fact that it was a, a problem and uncomfortable to fly. So there are tons of advantages. Um, you you get uh, health, you get stamina, you get um, and conveniences. Uh, you know, the old restaurant issue that many of us who are obese have experienced where people say, would you like a booth or a table? And most of us would choose a table. And if you did get asked by your crowd to try a booth, you worried that as soon as you got there, you were going to have to demonstrate that you couldn't fit in because the table wouldn't move. So uh, now sitting in a booth is fine. That's remarkable. I mean, that's, that's a lot of change. Tell me, what do you miss the most food-wise, and what's your favorite low-carb meal? I never was a big sugar consumer. I mean, I like things that were sweet, but Giving up sugar wasn't a real hardship for me. What was hard were the savory carbs, the pasta. Uh, God, I love pasta. The potatoes, <laughs> uh, 
potatoes and pasta. Having grown up in the South, I was fine to relinquish the rice, but I think pasta of any kind. My wife is a phenomenal cook, and she could make a pasta that you just couldn't believe. And I think I miss miss those variants on pasta. Uh, and my favorite favorite um, low carb meal, you know, I love when I'm traveling, and it's not something I do much when we're home. But when I'm traveling, I love breakfast and. So an omelet with ham and cheese and a few low-carb vegetables like onion and pepper, uh, as opposed to mushroom, which would be a little higher carb. Um, so a, a good omelet and then a side of bacon is, I think, the breakfast that said to me, this doesn't feel very much like a diet. For another low-carb slash keto perspective, I thought we'd bring somebody who has been heard of before from Invercargill. You want to introduce yourself again? Oh, hey, I'm David Mosen. You may remember me from such segments as the Banana Report. Yes, vaguely, vaguely. So you're in Invercargill. It's been a while since we caught up with you. So uh, let the peeps know what you're up to down there. You're way down the bottom end of the South Island of New Zealand. Yeah, no, I'm pretty far south so i'm down in invercargill because i'm studying right now and i'm i mean working part-time but I'm, i just moved here to study at the sit southern institute of technology well, we thought we'd talk to you about the low carb thing because you've just got into it quite recently how's that going for you and why did you decide to get into it my partner joe she's a qualified personal trainer so she's always been really into fitness and so i've kind of caught on to that i kind of jumped onto that when i met her so now i'm really into fitness and i've been um she's a good influence oh no she she's great and um so i've been working at fitness i've been working out what works for me the most and stuff and i've been getting quite into i wouldn't say bodybuilding but i'm just resistance training with a lot of weights and stuff and um as much as I like to, you know, try to get as big as I can, I'm also trying to keep my fat levels down so I look a bit leaner. And um, after trying stuff like a calorie deficit for a while or just eating better, they always tend to crash and burn. And it might just be me or it might just be what it is. But so what happened is that after doing some research, keto keep coming up. And I remember the fact that you do it a lot and i'm thinking well it worked for him maybe we should give this a try so i think it was about a month and a bit ago me and my partner decided hey let's give keto a go and we we've loved the benefits so much since that we haven't really gone back what are those benefits what are you experiencing well right now my energy levels between meals i've noticed has been a lot higher so when i go to the gym beforehand i used to always have to eat a meal so i could get the full experience out of my workout i had reaped the benefits the most but now what i found is that you don't rely on the meals for the energy you eat the meals for the benefits of the food like the vitamins or the protein that i have but what i found is that i'm a lot less reliant on outside sources like food and coffee caffeinated beverages to give me that energy because what i've noticed that keto has really been 
boosting that. Yes, you don't get that crash in the middle of the day that you mm. have had. Maybe if you have a carby breakfast and then by the middle of the day, you've got that awful hunger in the pit of your stomach feeling and you're just feeling listless. Yeah, just, you can go a lot longer without thinking, oh, man, I really have to eat. I mean, I'm not going to go ahead and say you don't get hungry, but I'm just saying that it's less of a craving almost. Yeah, you feel fuller for longer, right? Yes, yes. What are you eating then? I'm I'm trying to stay on the higher protein. Like I said, I'm quite into my resistance training. So, for example, for breakfast, I eat bacon and eggs, which is my personal favorite to start the day. And then there's other kind of meals that we've come up with along the way because at the beginning we weren't really sure how to start, so it was just a lot of salads and stuff. But now we've kind of worked out more meals. Um, we're a big fan of mushrooms because they're low carb we like to have a lot of chicken with vegetables that are also low carb that kind of stuff it's all the non-processed stuff that you find that makes you feel the best but of course i there's always um the stuff that i can just buy from the supermarket like the protein atkin bars when you started this did you find that it was a real hard slog for a while while your body was converting to burning fat for fuel did you get what they sometimes call the keto flu um I didn't get it that bad, but I know my partner, Joe got it really bad. She had a lot of cravings for carbs, and she had the symptoms, as you do. But, of course, she got it worse, but her weight loss happened a lot more rapidly than mine did. So, I guess it's each to their own. But um, I have attempted low-carb before, but that was when I was a bit younger and still living at home, so it was a bit harder, where everyone else was eating carbs around me, so they didn't last as long as I would have liked. So I kind of expected or knew what I was to expect, unlike Joe. So I think she got it a bit harder than I did. And now she's losing a lot of weight, though, right? She has. She's lost, oh gosh, how much has she lost? Eight kilograms in less, less than eight weeks. It's You have had some pushback from people, and I think Joe has as well, because there's still this orthodoxy that says – Oh, eating all this stuff is bad for you and you need lots of fresh fruit and veggies and that kind of stuff. So you've you've been sort of dealing with the doubters as well. well yeah, I've, um, I've noticed this people at work, they don't mean to discourage. I think they just, they don't understand fully. For example, I have a co-worker who's a diabetic and she was telling me, well, you know, you you can do it, you do you, but I personally couldn't do it because... It'll cause my organs to shut down. And I'm like, that can't be right. I'm pretty sure that's not what she means when she says ketosis. So I went back and I looked up and what she was referring to was ketoacidosis, yes. which is something completely different. It just sounds very similar. So, and in um, fact, while it's not true for everybody, some people have had their type 2 diabetes completely cured by going keto. Yeah, no, I, I did read that somewhere and there's there's a whole bunch of health benefits that I'm still to look up and really reap the benefits of because I am quite new at this at this lifestyle. Is there that anything you miss? I mean, of course, there's always you know you get the craving of you know you want pizza or you want a whole bunch of beers or whatever. But of course, there's always workarounds for that. And in the end, I feel like with my motivation and especially because I am doing it with my partner. It's a lot easier to be like, well, we could eat this or we could feel good about ourselves and feel good in general. So I think that kind of outweighs the cravings that we occasionally have. 
you just feel so different now and it's kind of when you take the step back to eat the high carb foods is only when you realize did i feel like this all the time yeah or is it just because i'm eating low carb now that it's a lot more drastic than it was before and how much weight have you lost because you talked about how much joe had lost but how much have you lost i think at this point i've lost about five to six kgs Mosin at large podcast. hey jonathan a very interesting discussion uh, you guys are having about health and health related food and how visually impaired people manage their diets so i would just have a few questions and my inputs so my question for you is how as blind people are you able to manage uh, with your diet now identifying and sharing information of the diet i understand it may work for some it may not and you're comfortable with the diet you've identified and it is working for you but how do you manage executing it so in terms of ingredients or uh, i understand that you and your wife both are blind so do you have a paid help who comes and cooks and when i say you i mean you or any of the mosin at large listeners or or do you have to struggle with the ingredients or does this require some training and uh, uh, how do you manage your lunch then when you're in office do you get a similar diet uh, so we are putting a bit more restrictions uh, in terms of our choices of for eating and my specific question is with blindness how do we manage it the execution part uh, the cooking part the packaging part you know uh, second what i used to do now this was a year and a half back i used to take a subscription now this was a lot of trial and error i tried three four subscriptions and uh, i found something which was suiting uh, me and my family a lot so this was a salad and soup subscription my favorite <laughs> uh, well, i should say our favorite and uh, so we had a weekly or a monthly option and uh, you would uh, whatsapp them and then they deliver it to your uh, defined address uh, within a time slot of one hour so this worked very well for six months and then they discontinued and then covid happened and they've relaunched their services again now but they've gone through an app which is not voice over friendly uh, and uh, apparently i am the only uh, blind customer so as of for the next few days or months i'm not too keen on renewing the subscription i'm just trying to get some other options but you know you want it to be hassle free now i like you i am a very big fan of uber eats which now is zomato in india but then how long do you order from there you know and every day if you have to order it requires time i mean you order then you select and then you wait for the delivery to come and then you can't keep your phone busy until he actually comes because there generally might be a call even though it's contactless a phone call generally is there so that is a good alternative but not a daily substitute maybe twice or thrice a week so uh, yeah so that's what i was doing salad and soup subscription which worked really well for me as long as it was functional and uh, currently i'm not following any diet and i would like to be interested uh, in the thoughts shared by mozen at large listeners and your inputs as to how as blind we are managing our uh, cooking uh, specific diets thanks very much had good to hear from you being blind is definitely no barrier to being an absolutely superb cook i am not but i can cook to survive there's no problem with me putting a chicken in the oven or a roast dinner in the oven or using the grill i really like our opti grill i had a george foreman grill for a very long time now we have an opti grill because it sort of senses the temperature of the meat you can determine whether you want say a rare steak or whatever you're cooking and you can set that up and it will beep when the temperature has got to the point that the meat should be how you like it. So I do enjoy a bit of grilling from time to time. And of course, there's always the microwave, which is easy enough to use. 
recently we purchased an air fryer and that's very accessible as well. And that's a handy contraption. Perhaps we'll get Bonnie to talk a bit more about that because I must confess, I don't do hardly any cooking at the moment. It's just something I don't like to do, really. It doesn't grab me, but I can do it. And being blind isn't a reason not to. Certainly in Western countries, training is available to teach blind people how to cook. Some people use it and some people are self-starters. Given that you are dealing with hot temperatures, especially if you're grilling or getting things out of the oven, then there's absolutely no shame at all in using an instructor to learn those techniques. The most common term used for teaching blind people cooking and various other similar skills about sort of household maintenance, that sort of thing, is called TDL, Techniques of Daily Living. And many rehab agencies will send you for some training or send a Techniques of Daily Living instructor to your house and teach you with your own equipment. We all know who listen to this podcast that gadgets are fun and we have a number of gadgets in the kitchen including a talking kitchen scale so we can weigh things that need to be weighed according to recipes. We use our soup drinker quite a bit to set timers in the kitchen and of course we get recipes from the web, we order the ingredients online. It's really not a big deal to us to put a nice meal together so no, sadly Nobody does come and cook for us. For convenience, because both of us are working, we do sometimes get food from a place called Primal Kitchen. And Primal Kitchen here in New Zealand will serve low-carb, freshly cooked meals. Not because we can't do it, but just because we'd like a bit of us time at the end of the day. We quite often will get Primal Kitchen to deliver us a week's worth of meals. But there is also something very satisfying about going to a website, finding a recipe that sounds absolutely delicious, getting the ingredients and putting it together. It's really satisfying. I don't know whether there are any books that people would recommend for somebody who might be interested in getting started in the kitchen as a blind person. One of the things that can be an issue is that if you are living with sighted people, who mean well, sometimes they don't really want to let you loose in the kitchen. You really have, I think, to be able to make your own mistakes and learn from them. And if somebody's concerned for your safety, mistakenly so or otherwise, and they're hovering in the background, it can be quite intimidating while you do your experiments and try to get to grips with things. So definitely, I think training has some real benefits. When my agenda is clear, I really do find cooking quite creative, and I hardly do it, but when I do, I do find it quite creative, because especially if you're throwing things into the mix, like spices or different things to add flavor, it's a fun experiment. It's kind of like sitting here where I am now in my studio and creating a mix. But perhaps others can comment on getting started as a blind cook, and whether there are perhaps online resources that might be available to assist with that. Monica is writing in from Houston and says, Hi, Jonathan, I first wanted to tell you how much I enjoy your show. I don't get a chance to write often, but I do listen and appreciate all the contributions from all the listeners. I'd like to talk about health and well-being. In terms of meditation, I tend to lean on prayer. My husband and I begin our day by reading a devotional 
praying and listening to worship music. That's what keeps us grounded. In terms of exercise, I don't like it very much. However, I have begun slowly incorporating it into my life. I've been using my elliptical, which I am liking. In terms of my eating, for me, over the years, I've noticed that the paleo-slash-low-carb lifestyle works for me the best. Everyone needs to see how their body feels and what you could do for a long period of time. For some, the ketogenic lifestyle is wonderful, and I'm grateful that they've found something that works for them. For me, I didn't like the keto diet. Since I have a thyroid issue, in working with my naturopath, we've found that the paleo and low-carb lifestyle works best, since I need to eat between 90 and 100 grams of protein a day. Since 2016, I'm proud to say I've lost over 50 pounds and have kept almost all of the weight off. I also do best when I plan my meals. When I do good, I really do good. But when I decide to go bad because of the pandemic, I went really bad. I did gain the COVID-15, but I did lose it, I'm proud to say. Before I mention resources, I know that cost can be a factor on deciding what to buy or not. Because of this, some of what I may mention could be too expensive. I thought I'd give the resources just in case people would like to explore options. For some, the subject of dairy can be controversial. I do best if I don't have it most of the time. However, I will admit that I like having grass-fed butter by Kerry Gold, which people could find in the Costco or a supermarket. I also enjoy my bulletproof coffee. I often buy ghee from Amazon, that's G-H-E-E, by the way, from Amazon, by a company called Ancient Organics. I buy grass-fed meats from a company called ButcherBox. It's an auto-delivery program, which you can subscribe to and cancel or delay shipments whenever needed. Their customer service is very helpful. In terms of resources, I tend to buy a plant-based protein shake powder from a supermarket called Sprouts. I also buy collagen from Dr. Josh Axe. His website is www.draxe.com. I also enjoy reading recipes and books by Dr. Mark Hyman. Many of his books are on Bookshare, along with paleo books by various authors. And if you would like to share your weight loss, good health experiences, by all means be in touch. The email address once again is jonathan at mushroomfm.com. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. If you prefer, you can attach an audio clip to your email using the Voice Memos app or anything that records, or you can write something down. You can also leave a message by phone on our listener line. That number is 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736 in the United States, and we'll gladly keep the conversation going in future episodes. But that wraps up this episode of Mosin at Large. I hope that you've found it helpful, that it's got you curious, and that you might do some reading if you feel that it would be useful to do so. We'll be back at our regular scheduled time over the weekend for another episode, so feel free to keep those contributions coming. And thank you for listening. Mosin at Large.